Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution, and with me today is my wonderful collaborator, Phil Duffy, who is our constitutional instructor, and we're walking through one of the foundational documents of our constitutional republic, one of those documents that's often neglected uh, because it was superseded when our U.S. Constitution was ratified uh, by the 13 states that formed our country originally. But the first government we had at the federal level, or the general government as our founders like to call it, was not under the United States Constitution we are currently under. It was under the Articles of Confederation. A system of, obviously, not as strong a central government. It was a confederacy of the 13 states that were in the Union at that time. And and that confederation actually was successful in the sense that it took us through the war for independence. Um, and some would argue that it did a, a lousy job. That was the Federalists saying it was uh, very weak and, and inadequate for the exigencies, that is, the emergencies that would occur. And so... The argument was, we need a new constitution. But actually, as we're studying the Federalist and Anti-Federalist arguments, the series we con concluded of the 85 Federalist papers and compared them and contrasted them with 80 Anti-Federalists, we saw clearly that there was some, you um, might call it PRing, spin doctoring, or whatever you want to call it, but the uh, argument that we desperately needed this new constitution, that there, there was no way we could continue under the Articles of Confederation. <laughs> that argument had a lot of holes in it. And so we were led to say, well, that, that causes us to say, let's actually take a look at the details of the Articles of Confederation to see if the arguments that uh, it was so weak and, and uh, feeble that it, it really could not accomplish a sound government, if, if that is true. And we're finding that there's Good arguments for saying that much in the Articles of Confederation was good and uh, could be strengthened. And so uh, we're continuing in that study. But before we do, let me just read to you one particular verse of Scripture that I think is apropos for all of our discussion about the Federalist, Anti-Federalist, the Articles of Confederation, the U.S. Constitution, our Declaration of Independence. And that is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it says here, where the Spirit of the Lord is there is liberty. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. In other words, it's a spiritual battle that is really taking place, because if we just look at this from a, a human perspective, we're going to miss what our founders clearly understood. As they said there, uh, I would call it the American creed was simply this, there is a creator God, and that's the God of the Bible. And he, and he alone, gives us rights. Our rights come from God, not from government. And thirdly, the only purpose of human civil government is to protect those God-given rights. So while there's a clear separation of the powers and the jurisdiction of the church government from that of the civil government, nonetheless, both the church government and the civil government, according to our founders, are under God's law. Or as the founder said in the Declaration of Independence, uh, our civil government is under the laws of nature and nature's God. 
In fact, if you look at the argument there in the Declaration of Independence, they said the reason we have a God-given right to separate from Great Britain and from uh, King George III is King George III is in violation of the laws of nature and nature's God, implying, therefore, that civil government, human civil government, as King George III's government was, that human civil government must be in submission to the laws of nature and nature's God. Those phrases we've talked about before refer to human conscience and secondly refer to the Bible. And so when civil government violates the law of God given to us in the word of God, that civil government becomes at some point illegitimate. And that's exactly what they argued in the Declaration. The king has violated the laws of nature and nature's God in these 27 ways, and therefore their conclusion was that he is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. So, my friends, when you hear people today telling us, oh, there's this separation of church and state, by which they usually mean a separation of God from government, which implies that government can pay no attention, needs pay no attention at all to the laws of nature and nature's God, can go ahead and violate your God-given rights, and such a government is good. That's the exact opposite of what our founders said, both in the Declaration and the whole purpose of establishing a new government based upon the laws of nature and nature's God. The purpose is that that human civil government be obedient to the law of God. And when it's obedient to the law of God, that civil government is going to be protecting your God-given rights, not violating your God-given rights. Well, kind of with that as the backdrop, drop, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on the next section here, the concluding section of uh, the Articles of Confederation. Well, mercifully, the last four articles are reasonably brief and fit for human consumption. That's not to say that every idea in these last four articles is logically correct, but they do represent quite an improvement over Article 9, which must have had a different author. Let's look at Article 10. Article 10 states, the Committee of the States, or any nine of them, shall be authorized to execute in the recess of Congress such of the, uh, the powers of Congress as the United States in Congress assembled by the consent of the nine states shall from time to time think expedient to vest them with, provided that no power be delegated to the said committee, for the exercise of which, by the Articles of Confederation, the voice of nine states in the Congress of the United States Assembled be requisite. Even if the Congress of the United States had been able to effectively provide the executive function while it was in session, and the promoters of the Constitution of 1787 claimed a permanent and separate executive was required, an executive body was required during congressional recesses. The Committee of States served that purpose, and it was empowered to make executive decisions with a majority of nine states concurring. Note that every state had one vote, just as in the full Congress. There was one exception captured somewhat clumsily in the second part of Article 10. Provided that no power be delegated to the said committee for the exercise of which, by the Articles of Confederation, the voice of nine states in the Congress of the United States Assembled be requisite. In other words, if the wording of the Articles of Confederation required that the full Congress be assembled for amendments to the 
the uh, articles of, conf- uh, of the, uh, to the amendments to the articles, the Committee of States had to operate strictly within that con- uh, Constitution. Let's look at Article 11. Article 11 states, Canada, acceding to this confederation and adjoining in the measures of the United States, shall be admitted into and entitled to all the advantages of this union, but no other colony shall be admitted into the same unless such admission be agreed to by nine states. The dream of Canada joining a union of English-speaking states on the North American continent was alive at the ratification of the Articles. It was a dream that would continue until the conclusion of the War of 1812, at which point it was absolutely clear that Canadians wished to go their own way under relatively loose governance by Great Britain. Perhaps the thinking was that France, having been an ally of the United States during the War of Independence, French Canadians would prefer government under the United States to that of Great Britain. But Great Britain was distant. The United States was next door and in a position to overwhelm French Canadians in a continental uh, government. Canada into the Union further ignored that loyalists who had once resided in the United States and had been forced to flee to the Canadian sanctuary. Let's look at Article 12. Article 12 states, all bills of credit emitted, monies borrowed, and debts contracted by or under the authority of the, of the Congress before the assembling of the United States in pursuance of the present confederation shall be deemed and considered as a charge against the United States for payment and satisfaction whereof the said United States and the public faith are hereby solemnly pledged. This article was essential to establishing the credibility of the United States under the Articles of Confederation. This article addressed the period before the ratification of the Articles on July 9, 1778, when the original states ratified the document. The government under the Articles could have said to creditors, sorry, this is a new government, we don't recognize those debts. Instead, it wished to affirm those debts to assure that its credit standing remained acceptable. This is a good time to discuss one alleged weakness of the Articles of Confederation government as expressed by its opponents, who believe that government ought to be replaced by one with more energy, that is, a government under the Constitution of 1787. Their case was that a crisis had arisen because Not just the government, but ordinary Americans were being denied the credits extended by European merchants. To understand the fundamental long-term relationship of European merchants, and British merchants in particular, with Americans, it is helpful to turn to the comments of Alan Taylor in American colonialism about the period prior to Lexington and Concord. During the mid-18th century, Colonial consumers usually had better credit than common Britons. Over time, the terms of trade shifted in favor of most colonists, especially in the middle colonies in the South, as their produce fetched higher prices while they paid stable prices for English men. 
Colonists also benefited from the increased competition of British merchants, especially Scots, to capture consumer markets by extending credit more freely to colonial customers. In sum, the growing American market became critical to the profits and growth of British manufacturing. That war harmed the interests of both Americans and Britons is not questioned, but Britons and Europeans in general could ill afford to isolate themselves from the opportunities connected with the transatlantic trade. Let's look at Article 13. Article 13 stated, Every state shall abide by the determination of the United States and Congress assembled on all questions which by this confederation are submitted to them. And the Articles of Confederation shall be inviolably observed by every state, and the Union shall be perpetual, nor shall any alteration at any time hereafter be made in any of them, unless such alteration be agreed to in a Congress of the United States, and be afterwards confirmed by the legislatures of every state. That the states were bound to the provisions of the Articles of Confederation is obvious, although the question of compliance without coercion remained. The idea of a perpetual union, however, was silly. History offers no examples, uh, no examples, and there is no such thing as a perpetual contract in law. When no term is specified, then the concept of reasonable notification guides courts. Translated to social contracts, of which constitutions are the primary example, that principle supports the secession of states when they find a federal government follows policies that are contrary to their interests. That is also a point made by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. The weakness of requiring every state to ratify an amendment before the amendment takes effect has been acknowledged, has to be acknowledged. Um, however, giving each state veto power had practical limitations as the case of Rhode Island demonstrated. Representatives of the other 12 states could have gone to Rhode Island and acknowledged that technically, Rhode Island could block any amendment to the Articles, but the other states could then dissolve the Union and create a new one without Rhode Island. That is precisely what happened when 11 states seceded and formed a new government under the Constitution of 1787. North Carolina quickly joined, but Rhode Island remained outside the new federation for 14 months, finally capitulating to reality. There is a conclusion to the Articles of Confederation, and it uh, starts with this statement. And whereas it hath pleased the great governor of the world to incline the hearts of the legislatures, we respectively represent in Congress to approve of and to authorize us to ratify the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. Know ye that we, the undersigned delegates, by virtue of the power and authority to us given for that purpose, do by these presents, in the name and in behalf of our respective constituents, fully and entirely ratify and confirm each and every of the said Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, and all 
and singular matter, singular is the matters and things therein contained. And we do further solemnly plight and engage the faith of our respective constituents that they shall abide by the determinations of the United States in Congress assembled on all questions which by the said confederation are submitted to them. And that the articles thereof shall be inviolably observed by the states we respectively represent. And that the union shall be perpetual. And there is no comparable reference to the governor of the world in the preamble of the Constitution of the United States. This can be written off as a growing concern about the lack of separation between church and state that was implied in the articles. Or, alternatively, to the beginnings of secularism in government. Note the final statement that the union shall be perpetual. History demonstrated that the strongest words in constitutions can be ignored. The Articles of Confederation were doomed when New Hampshire ratified the Constitution of 1787, a mere seven years later. Political unions are not perpetual. I have some reflections on all of the Articles of Confederation, and particularly the, the discussions we have previously had on the subject of the Federalist Essays and the Anti-Federalist Essays. WFYL's We the People, the Constitution Matters radio show, is now concluding its series on the Articles of Confederation, following a series in which it analyzed both the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers. It will next turn to a series about the Northwest Ordinance, an accomplishment of the Articles of Confederation government. Prior We the People series have analyzed the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution and its amendments, Madison's notes of the Constitutional Convention, and the ratification debates at the states. Personally, I began this exercise as a firm believer in the Constitution of the United States, or what has been referenced as the Constitution of 1787. That is not to say there are no weaknesses in the current Constitution. I could easily identify a dozen. Yet I still can't acknowledge that the Constitution of the United States stands out among those of other nations. But that cannot be the standard if the United States is to remain John Withrop's city upon a hill, beckoning other nations as a model of justice. I remain committed to the idea that constitutions matter, and I am no fan of unwritten constitutions. Yet I am forced to acknowledge there is a darker side to the promotion of the Constitution of 1787, which is revealed only when the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers are analyzed together, and when the Articles of Confederation are viewed through that lens. That is not to say that the Articles were the perfect Constitution. Comments made on this show should make it clear that the Articles had their weaknesses. But were they the weaknesses that have come down to us as accepted wisdom in our school books? In my opinion, the greatest tragedy in transitioning from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution was the abandonment of the principle that each state ought to pay its share of the cost of a limited government with enumerated powers. Once that principle was abandoned, there was no limit to the powers 
that would be sought by top-down government promoters, particularly after the concept of the general welfare had infiltrated our culture. Initially granted only direct taxation power over import tariffs and excises, a federal government governing elite now claims the right to directly tax everything that moves or is stationary, eating out the substance of individual liberty, to use the Jeffersonian thought in the Declaration of Independence. To enforce that power, it has employed a mountainous tax code and a bureaucracy, the Internal Revenue Service, to enforce the federal government's terror over the American people. Yet the current administration is not satisfied, planning to hire 87,000 more IRS agents who, in conjunction with a digital currency scheme, would be identify any American as a federal criminal. In such a world, only the politically connected could survive. Tyranny would be complete. Nor should we give any credibility to the other alleged weaknesses in the, uh, of the articles of, uh, found in textbooks. The claim that foreign nations and merchants had lost faith in Americans should be the object of ridicule. And no national government has ever come into as much natural wealth as did the government of the Articles of Confederation when the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783. The idea that Shay's rebellion was the last straw demonstrating the weaknesses of the Articles may be the most absurd piece of propaganda that has found its way into school textbooks. Shay's rebellion was about Massachusetts, not federal taxes. Eastern Massachusetts commercial interests dominated the legislature and they passed tax legislation that other Massachusetts citizens found to be unjust. The matter was settled within Massachusetts, and the Articles government demonstrated its strength by not becoming involved. All of this can be distilled into the notion of emergency powers, which many uh, Americans believe exist in the Constitution of the United States. They do not, and intentionally so. Hamilton and his friends may have convinced enough people that a crisis existed when the Constitution was ratified, but they had the political sense not to press for emergency powers in the Constitution. That wisdom did not exist in Weimar Germany, where its notorious Article 48 was employed to deliver dictatorial powers to Adolf Hitler. Americans today have been exposed to the emergency powers myth in connection with the so-called COVID-19 pandemic. The federal government never had emergency powers, although what Laterer and Burdick identified as a nation of sheep timidly accepted this clear usurpation of power during the COVID-19 pandemic. When the next pathogenic virus arrives, will the people recognize their past mistake or once again comply with even more assaults on liberty by the governing elite? As Thomas Jefferson once observed, let history answer this question. Mm. Oh, amen, Phil. And I agree with you that this is, uh, we, we see a tyranny in terms of the misinterpretation and misapplication of our Constitution. Uh, and, and indeed, by the way, those, those uh, IRS agents, the 87,000 IRS agents would more than double 
the employees of the IRS. And I understand they're being trained with firearms that we're being told by the Biden administration are illegal, that is illegal for Americans to own, things like AR-15s and semi-auto. And I even understand they're, they're training them with fully auto. Why would IRS agents that use a, you know, a calculator and a pen and they've got a green eye shade, why would they need full autos? Why, why, this makes no sense at all, unless this army is, uh, like you suggest, going to be used to tyrannize us. And that should be the concern of of we as American citizens that uh, we see uh, tyranny, evil tyranny growing by leaps and bounds. And agreed, there is uh, uh, weaknesses in the Articles of Confederation. There's strengths in the Articles of Confederation. Uh, Article 10, as you state, that uh, uh, allowed a committee of the states basically functioning as an executive uh, in an executive role while Congress was not in session. And by the way, unlike today when Congress is in session, almost every every uh, month of the year, I think they take a, a larger recess in August and, you know, around Christmas and Easter and so on that. But generally speaking, ca- Congress is meeting around the clock every single month. And Congress only met for a few months at a time at the most. So it uh, is a, was a different day, so there's a long period of time. And we need to remember that under the Articles of Confederation, there was no executive branch. There was no judicial branch at the federal level, only Congress. And, and that as well, it was just a unicameral, one, one house, no House and Senate. So everything was uh, contained within the powers uh, of Congress itself. So this committee of the states, uh, consider, consisting of uh, uh, authorized to execute in the recess of Congress powers the United States and Congress assembled, gave to them by consent of the nine states uh, could meet and basically be the executive branch during that time. So there is a weakness here in that we see all power at the federal level coalesced into one body, a single House Congress, rather than our federal constitution that had three branches of government, an executive branch, a judicial branch, and a, an, an executive branch. Now, one of the things you always need to recognize is that a small government is always cheaper. Yeah, well, maybe not always. Let me put it this way. A small government is most often less expensive. You have three branches of government. Those three branches are going to suck up a lot more money than one uh, Congress that's meeting just for a few months of the year, which meant the the members of Congress, their job as a congressman was not their full-time work. They had a job back at home in their district. In other words, when they passed laws... They had to live under those laws when they went back home, you know. So maybe they're running a dry goods store, maybe they uh, they're a farmer, or you know, whatever, or a lawyer, whatever their occupation was. That kept them in touch with what it was like on the ground to be a citizen of these United States, and uh, their government power was much smaller than what uh, came out of our U.S. Constitution. That's one of the disadvantages of shifting to the U.S. Constitution. We gave enormous power by creating three branches of government. All of a sudden, it's no longer just the court system of the states. Now we have to fund a federal court system and pay all of these judges, not only in the Supreme Court, but the uh, circuit courts and so on at the federal level. So an enormous bureaucracy becomes established 
and we look at the, the executive branch, oh my lord, the executive branch, all the alphabet soup agencies under the executive branch, and the treasury has agencies under it, like the IRS is under the treasury, which is under the executive, and anyway, the number of employees and the amount of money they suck up is enormous. So that was one of the strengths in one sense, but also one of the weaknesses, uh, the balance of powers uh, in, in, in the design of the Articles of Confederation. Um, now, it provided that no power delegated to the said committee for the exercise of which, by the Articles of Confederation, the voice of nine states in Congress of the United States assembled be requisite. So, in other words, they had to approve of any powers that were granted to this temporary executive function uh, that was that of uh, of the, the, the committee that they designed. Now, Article 11 uh, deals with the idea that Canada, you know, Canada ought to come into the union. And uh, they were rather, I guess, um, naive here, thinking that Canadians uh, didn't have a, a concern for themselves. And you rightly point out, Phil, that there was a large exodus of those who were loyalists called Tories during the War for Independence when the war obviously was not going the way for Great Britain. Those Tories knew that their days were numbered. You know, New York City was a Tory stronghold and it was held by uh, the British for most of the war. And so when the British were finally departing New York, there were people clamoring to get on every ship out. And so there was a large number of people that went to Canada, Nova Scotia primarily, but also uh, to British colonies in, the, in the, the Caribbean. But those Canadians, those Tories in Canada, they would not at all be interested in being connected with the United States at, at all. But it is interesting to see the backdrop of the War of 1812 the War of 1812, we, we know the famous battles, you know, what happened with the uh, Battle of Bladensburg and uh, uh, the burning of Washington, D.C. and the bombardment of Fort McHenry outside Baltimore, all those kind of things we, we know a lot about. But if you really look at the history of the War of 1812, most of the war was not fought down in, in the, you know, in, in the eastern seaboard where we think of it. It was fought mostly up in Lake Erie. It was fought to capture what is called Lower Canada. So if you look at a map and you look at the, you know, the Great Lakes, the southernmost portion of Canada, uh, you know, borders on across the river from Detroit and so forth. And that area was what was being battled over in the War of 1812. And repeatedly, because as the British learned in, in the, the War for Independence, they learned sadly to their own chagrin that when you're fighting people on their own home turf, that is when, you, when you're battling them from house to house in their own land, you're going to have a disadvantage because those people are motivated to fight for their home, for their hearth, for their family, uh, for their livelihood, for their farm. Whereas when you're fighting you know, in a distant place, you cross the uh, Lake Erie, for example, and you're fighting on the other side of Lake Erie trying to combat uh, you know, the well, those people are going to fight hard to preserve their own liberty. So in a sense, it's as if uh, in the War of 1812, we lost perspective, the perspective we had in the War for Independence, that people love independence and people do not want to be forced into some union that they're not interested in remaining part of, which, you know, is a kind of an interesting uh, sidelight on the war between the states where the southern states didn't want to be in the union any longer and they didn't want to be forced to stay in the union. 
But anyway, the, the War of 1812, the conclusion of that, obviously, so that we're not going to gain the Canadians' desire to join us. And certainly shooting at them doesn't make them willing to join uh, our, our constitutional republic under uh, the U.S. Constitution. So that, that was a, a lesson learned that Article 12 uh, or, or, excuse me, Article 11 kind of uh, indicated that that was, that was a wish. Now, Article 12, that is very interesting because it deals with the whole issue of finances, all bills. Now, bills of credit admitted, we need to understand that's paper money. In other words, uh, real money is gold and silver. That's hard currency. Bills of credit say, well, I owe you so many dollars. So I'm going to give you a note that says, I owe you. Here's your IOU. Uh, lots of luck collecting on it. But, you know, I'm going to give you this IOU to say that I do owe you this money. You might have a difficult time actually getting that money in gold or silver. But here's the piece of paper indicating I agree that I have this debt. Now, the bills of credit uh, being emitted here are spoken about as being emitted by the United States prior to the agreement that was entered into here under the Articles of Confederation. Of course, we know that the Articles of Confederation were not fully ratified, the last state being Maryland. It's 1781 before Maryland actually agreed. So they're basically saying that all those uh, bills of credit that the federal government emitted would be honored, which is a good thing, an honorable thing, saying we're not going to uh, borrow money, we're not going to do this, and then refuse to pay it back. That's an honest, honorable, and a Christian thing to do, to pay the debts that you owe. You entered into debt, an honest debt, therefore you need to pay that debt w which you owe, that you entered into. But it's interesting because this was a huge problem during the era under the Articles of Confederation. The bills of credit emitted were called Continentals, you know, a $1 Continental, <laughs> And the value of that depleted and declined during the period of time the Articles of Confederation were in operation to the point at which that dollar was only worth about one penny. So, you know, if you had a, a, a $1 Continental, the phrase arised, worthless as a Continental, because people said, I don't want your paper. Give me gold or silver. If, if you got gold or silver, I'll take, I'll take that for, in exchange for the goods or services. But don't give me that worthless Continental. I don't want it. And so the, the reduction of the value of that caused an enormous problem of inflation and also a recession because when people can't trust the money and there isn't much gold or silver available, uh, then it stymies trade uh, because it, it kind of locks the economy in an unworkable situation. And so recognizing this as one of the weaknesses of the article, uh, Articles of Confederation, it's fascinating to see what, our Congress, uh, what the proposal was and was passed in our United States Constitution. This is Article 1, Section 10. This is the part of our Constitution that restricts what states can do. These are things listed here that states cannot do. And Article 1, Article 1 Section 10, uh, first clause says, no state shall, and then it gives a list of things, but in that list of things, no state shall coin money, emit bills of credit, Make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. In other words, they said we're going to end this idea of paper currency, particularly fiat currency like the, like the Continentals were, just printing money out of thin air because it's not backed by anything. And we know it, 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 its value declines so rapidly and it's not a good system economically for the nation. So they said we're going to do away with these bills of credits that we were doing under the Articles of Confederation. In fact, 
when I look at the Articles of Confederation, I think this is one of the greatest weaknesses of the Articles that they permitted these bills of credit to be admitted uh, by the federal government. And by the way, the states were also doing the same thing. So the states were printing money. So you had Continentals and then you had you know, something from New Jersey and something from Pennsylvania. You had all these uh, pieces of paper floating around that soon began to be regarded as worthless. But notice our Constitution says only uh, gold and silver coins can be tender in payment of debts, not even silver certificates or gold certificates. Only gold or silver coins could be used to pay a debt. And if that's a restriction on the state government, certainly that is also a restriction on the federal government. So how do we get away with that? Well, how do we get away from that? The first uh, major uh, move away from that was the war between the states where to pay for that very expensive war. And by the way, necessary war, you could have ended slavery much cheaper and much uh, with, without the loss of a huge amount of blood of a million more people. You could have done that without the war. And of course, they didn't want to do that. They wanted to conquer the South and destroy the South. But that's a, that's a whole different argument. So when we stepped into that war and it became too expensive to pay for that war, what did the Northern government do? The Union government began to print greenbacks, is what they were called, because the back of the bill was green. And that was the beginning of fiat currency. It was backed by nothing. And eventually, after the war was over, eventually all of those bills of uh, credit emitted by the federal government were repaid and the fiat currency was abolished and done away with. All of those uh, greenbacks were gone and we went back to gold and silver. That is until FDR and, and his wicked uh, administration made it illegal for Americans to own gold. Wait a minute. If gold and silver only are the payment of, of debts, then how can you make it illegal for American citizens to own gold? Well, it's just absolutely insane. And then, of course, we have uh, Nixon closing the gold window and us in 1965 going off the silver standard because quarters, quarters dimes, half dollars and, and silver dollars were all 90 percent silver. So even though we had uh, shut off uh, gold ownership, by, by according to FDR, silver was still used. And you could – I remember as a child seeing silver certificate, $5 silver certificates had bearable on demand uh, by the possessor in silver. So you go to the bank with your – five dollar note and say i want five dollars worth of silver and they would give you five uh one dollar silver coin if you wanted it that way or quarters whatever but these were actual silver uh, coins and not just the garbage that we have today uh pot metal that, that are circulated as as coinage as well as the paper that is worthless and becoming extremely worthless as they trillions of dollars of these so this is one of the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation, and our Constitution was supposed to fix that problem, and it did fix that problem for a time until our federal government decided to reject the correct understanding of our Constitution and charge ahead with this uh, headlong rush to indebtedness and creating debt slavery such that all of us now and our children and our grandchildren, who, many, who knows how many generations are now debt slaves, because I understand currently it's 31 trillion, but that's only the stated on the books number. If you look at the commitments made for Social Security, the commitments made for Medicare, Medicaid, and all the other entitlement programs, some say it's more than $150 trillion, a sum so large, so gargantuan that it is impossible for several generations to pay, and it's questionable if it can ever be paid off. 
America declared independence from Great Britain. America, in the 13th Amendment, said there will be no more slavery. And yet we have progressively been made slaves uh, by the debt slavery that our federal government has entered into. Well, let me move quickly on here to Article uh, 13, which I think also is one of uh, the weaknesses that every state shall abide by the determination of the United States that Congress assemble on all questions and uh, that there must be an absolute unanimous agreement to any alteration. So amending this Articles of Confederation, all 13 states had to agree that was not going to happen. And uh, indeed, that was one of the weaknesses why at the Articles or at the uh, Constitutional Convention, when they recognized Rhode Island is not going to show up. Actually, Rhode Island sent a letter saying, here's why we're not showing up. We hold the trump card. You cannot change the government without us because of this Article 13. Not recognizing that correctly, as you pointed out, Phil, uh, that we the people always have the right, as the Declaration of Independence says, when government no longer serves our purposes, when government no longer protects our God-given rights, then we the people have another God-given right to alter or abolish that government. And that's what the states in Philadelphia were doing. They were saying the 11, the 12 states gathered there were altering or abolishing or proposing an alteration and abolishment, which ultimately uh, 12 of the states adopted. And as you pointed out, uh, Rhode Island was uh, not joining that for another uh, 14 months. But uh, we always has given uh, human civil government in this regard. You see, we have rights that come to us from God. So if you image this in your mind, there's an arrow coming from heaven pointed down to our own heads. Every single person on earth has God-given rights. But those God-given rights, to protect those God-given rights, we might have to struggle if we are going to just protect them on our own. Or maybe just our family is going to stand all night long guarding the door of our house to see that no robber breaks in. So we compact together with our neighbors to form a civil government that will help us in the job of protecting our God-given rights. But we're not surrendering those God-given rights by forming that government. And by forming that government, we're only giving to that government limited, delegated, enumerated powers They have powers based upon the rights that we've been given by God. Because of those rights, we can combine together with other citizens and grant limited, delegated, enumerated powers to the civil government for the sole purpose of that civil government protecting and defending our God-given rights. That's the theory that we need to keep in mind in the picture of the arrow coming down from heaven on our head and we the people with our power and our arrow going out to our fellow citizens that together in a compact we have chosen to form civil government to protect our God-given rights. But we see that view is not in, in the minds of so many Americans today. And the result is that we're losing our liberties. Other comments or thoughts, Phil? Well, I'd like to go back to the basic idea of the, of, of the three separate branches. And, and, of course, this comes right out of Montesquieu. And if there was a political philosopher that was admired, it, it certainly uh, was Montesquieu. I mean, he's referenced I, so many times in, in the uh, Federalist Papers, for example, more than anybody else. So the idea of separation of powers, independent branches and so forth, comes out of that tradition. And let's accept that it's a good idea. Now, I don't know whether it is or not, for, frankly, at this point. But, I mean, let's accept for the sake of discussion that it's a good idea. Okay, then we must be very 
careful to constrain both the executive and the judicial branch powers. In other words, Article 2 describing the executive branch and Article 3 describing the judiciary should have been longer in length than Article 1 describing the legislative branch. Now, we can get a copy of the Constitution of the United States uh, online, uh, load it into a word processor, and do a word count on each of those articles. And what you will find is that the legislative branch is, is described in minute detail by comparison with the executive branch and the judicial. The judicial branch is just pathetic in its brevity. And we see the, we see the result of this. Because the uh, Article 2 and Article 3 are so vague in terms of executive and judicial powers, these branches have felt free to define their own powers. So we need we need to relook at that idea. Let's let's assume that it's a good idea. You have to look back at the the structure and organization of the Constitution and say that it it was a deeply flawed implementation of a correct idea. Ah, good point. And I think you had an example here in Bucks County recently with the FBI, is that correct? That illustrates an out-of-control executive branch acting tyrannically, right? Do I remember hearing or reading yeah. about this story? I'm sure we don't have the full story yet, but I mean, the basic idea, as I understand it, is that a, um, a Bucks County uh, resident, Bucks County being immediately outside of Philadelphia County, um, was involved in an incident in uh, uh, Philadelphia, I think it was Planned Parenthood, um, and the the idea was that he pushed uh, a 72-year-old uh, member of the Planned Parenthood uh, group there. Well, the story is a little bit larger than that. Um, the gentleman had his son with him, and um, the, the individual involved in being pushed, allegedly, uh, had really gotten in this child's face and was using expertise, apparently, and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, he was in the, the, the individual's uh, personal space. And the father intervened and pushed the individual, okay? Now, there was no injury involved. And apparently, a charge was made earlier, investigated by a court, and the, uh, the uh, uh, charge was thrown out. But now, what happened was the FBI raided this man's home, I think something like 7 o'clock in the morning, with all of the children and the wife present, with guns, okay? And... <clears throat> The, the children were shrieking, you know, with with terror, you know, like what's going on? You can just imagine with all these FBI agents uh, uh, coming through the door. And so my question about this is even if there were uh, a reasonable, you know, case that was being made, it doesn't sound like there's much of a, a reasonable case. Uh, number one, 
why wouldn't the arrest be made outside of the, the household with ample opportunities to do that? Ample opportunities. And then, of course, there's the whole question, and I hope you will expand on this, but uh, there's the whole question as to, you know, if this were an assault, why is the federal government involved, uh, you know, in, in uh, trying to protect a citizen against assault? That is the role of the state. And yet apparently there is leg- federal legislation out there of the, the basic idea of separation of state and federal powers. And, and it overrules it, I think, specifically, Phil, in the, re- the region of what happens outside the murder center, which is what Planned Parenthood is. It, Planned Parenthood exists to murder babies. And so when murdering babies is taking place, the federal government considers those human sacrifices so sacred, I guess you might say it's part of their religion, sacrificing humans is part of their religion, as you know, many, many ancient pagan religious systems also sacrificed humans. So sacrificing humans is so sacred that they have to do everything possible to keep the sacrifice of humans taking place. And what has happened then is the FBI is being weaponized as a tool against those who are pro-life. And this is a pattern we see under the, what I would call the O'Biden administration, because it's really the third term of Obama. But under the O'Biden administration, the FBI, as well as many other agencies of the federal government in the executive branch are being weaponized against anyone who stands, for example, the truth about the election fraud. You there in Pennsylvania experienced enormous election fraud, but if you question the election, you're now labeled a domestic terrorist by the Homeland Department of Homeland Security, an executive branch agency. And we see the FBI, their arrest of Roger Stone, completely the same kind of tactics of a terrorist government, or you might call it a USSR government. And what about the raid on Mar-a-Lago? And on and on the list goes. And I understand after the raid on Mar-a-Lago, Mar-a-Lago there was more than 50 people involved in some way, either in the Trump administration or in and, and helping his election campaign. Anyway, it was clearly a political attack where the executive branch of our government is being used to attack people who are political opponents, or in this case with abortion, those who oppose the taking of innocent human life uh, in those abortuaries. So we see what the danger that you pointed out, because uh, Article 2, the executive branch, is not well uh, constructed, that it lacks the kind of uh, uh, restraints upon the government power that can develop. We see what happens when, uh, when they go off the rails. And indeed, this is a very dangerous time, because I have friends who escaped from Vietnam. They escaped from Vietnam after the communists were, communists were in control and were murdering and massacring across uh, that, that sad nation. I have friends that have escaped from China, and they likewise uh, uh, understood the murderous nature of the communists and the executive branch completely without any restraints or control. And this weekend I met a man from Romania who was there, and he tried to escape, and he was captured when it was under the communist control, thrown into prison, beaten and, and, and tortured and so on. And finally, when the revolution came and overthrew the communists and there was bullets flying, he saw his friend die right in front of his feet. Uh, that, that's the kind of experience of tyrannical, wicked, dictatorial governments. And the sad thing that I see is it seems we are sliding in 
be an alarmist. I just want to look at what's taking place and say, when we compare the tyranny that we see of the Biden administration, the tyranny that's coming from the executive branch and the weaponizing of the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security that says the most dangerous people to them are not Muslim jihadists who are forming terror cells to to kill anybody that won't submit to Islam. No, no, that's not a problem at all, which we know there is a huge problem. But instead, the real problem is people who believe the Constitution of the United States ought to be interpreted according to our founders' interpretation, not according to some judge 200 years later. But what did the founders mean by those words? According to this administration, we're the most dangerous people. Why? Because it does, it, if, if the arguments we're presenting are believed by the American people, then the American people will reject what the Biden administration stands for and reject this destruction of our constitutional republic and the slide into a Marxist dictatorial, well, I can only call it a dictatorial hellhole, which is what any Marxist uh, nation becomes. Yeah, I think this, this issue about the... Uh the Bucks County man um, really demonstrates the point that I was trying to make. Um, there was legislation involved, national, federal legislation, that singled out uh, anything that happens, let us say, uh, within a certain number of feet of an abortion uh, clinic as being within the jurisdiction of the federal government. Well, any, any fool who has, you know, just scanned through the Constitution ought to be able to recognize that as a flaw, that there, there is no power given to the federal government to intervene in state cases of assault. Period. Okay. Now, why, why is the, the separation idea so badly flawed? Who is supposed to step in in a situation like this? It should be the judicial branch. Where was the judicial branch in taking that law and striking it down? I mean, and, and you look at you look at Article Three of the Constitution, which is amazingly brief, and you recognize that it says so little about the constraints on the uh, the federal, particularly the Supreme Court but it applies at lower courts as well. Uh, it, is, it is absolutely silent in terms of constraining the Supreme Court uh, justices and also sanctioning them when they violate their constitutional oaths. And in this case, their constitutional oath would require them to interpret the Constitution correctly. They, they simply went off on their own and said, well... We, we think abortion is a great idea, and therefore let's, you know, let's uh, support the federal government. And you're absolutely right in pointing out that the design of our founders, and this particularly revealed in, in the Federalist Papers 45, <laughs> by the way, if people read anything of the Federalist Papers, they ought to read the last three paragraphs or four paragraphs of Federalist 45, because important to understand, our founders said there's a balance of power between the federal government and the state government, 
and the state government has more power. The state government has greater responsibility for the lives, liberty, property, protection, all those things on the uh, on that level. The federal government just dealing primarily with external things. The federal government should not be involved in what's happening internally. In this case, a little dispute going on between two men and their child, uh, one man's child and all that. That's none of the business of the federal government, according to our founders. And clearly, there's another failure going on because the states are supposed to resist federal tyranny when the federal government grabs authority and power that does not belong to it, like what happens around abortuaries. But also there's a failure of the executive branch at the state level. We have the federal executive, FBI, violating the law, the supreme law of the land. And therefore, the state governor should step in as the executive. And if the state governor fails to do his job, then the executive at the county level, which is the sheriff, and by the way, the federal uh, FBI agents can do nothing in a county anywhere in these United States without the permission of the sheriff. And people ought to be talking to their sheriff very, very seriously, particularly if your sheriff is uh, up for election this November. Will he defend the people of his county against rogue agencies like the FBI that come into the county to violate the God-given rights of the citizens of the county? That's his job. And that FBI, those FBI agents should have been arrested by the sheriff of Bucks County and prevented from doing the wicked thing they did to that family there in Bucks County. Oh, absolutely. No question about it. And it's, it's a matter of, number one, understanding the, uh, the, the intent of the Constitution or, or the Articles of Confederation. You have to, first of all, understand the intent. You have to be very literal about the wording. Uh, the wording is, I think, relatively clear in the Constitution of the United States. Um, you can't violate the literal and the, and the intent uh, of the Constitution. That is absolutely forbidden. You, you get away from that and you have pure chaos. You, you have, you know, outlawry. I mean, these are outlaws at that yes. point. And that's that's what we're descending into. We're seeing the FBI outlaws, the arrest of Roger Stone, the, uh, the treatment of, of Mar-a-Lago, uh, taking documents they had no business taking that were not part of the warrant. So they were violating their own warrant and then attacking all Trump uh, uh, people in the, in the Trump campaign and people who have been in the Trump administration and then people who just uh, – you know, protested the election or were not even there on January 6th. Nonetheless, the FBI's at their door with guns drawn because somebody said they were at the January 6th protest. What? That's <laughs> just an accusation. This has actually happened in America. We've yeah. got snitches and you've got the, the brown shirts, uh, Nazi brown shirts or the NKVD, if you're talking about the USSR, showing up at your door, threatening your life, your liberty, your property, simply because somebody said you had done something and you hadn't done it at all. The, the particular family I'm thinking of, they had never been near Washington, D.C., anywhere around January 6th, but somebody reported them as being there. And so the FBI came uh, to threaten them. And this is intimidation. This is plain and simple, using the federal government to intimidate political opponents so those political opponents will back into a corner, hide, and stop speaking out. But for me, and I hope for you as well, Phil, I will not stop speaking out. We need to protest against this. And that's 
part of the reason why we exist here, we the people, the Constitution matters because we need to teach Americans the American view of law and government. There is a creator God. Our rights come from him. The only purpose of human civil government is to protect those God-given rights. And quite clearly, we have an administration at the federal level and many of our state levels as well that are refusing to do that job. They must be stopped. But the only way they can be stopped is a grassroots movement of citizens who stand up against them having the principles of our founders clearly in their thinking and acting upon those principles that we will not submit to a tyrannical King George III type government or USSR type government. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, inviting you to join us again next Friday morning when we start our, our new series where we will be exploring uh, the Northwest Ordinance that was made during the time of the Articles of Confederation. Join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m.